When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Who are the women who will help fight our country's war? It's 1942, and Julia McWilliams, as she was known then, had just signed up. Oh yes, it's your war too, Miss and Mrs. America. At six foot two, Julia was too tall for the army or the navy, so she accepted a job in the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA. She was tasked with whipping up a shark repellent to deter curious marine life from detonating underwater explosives intended for German U-boats. But it wasn't her recipe for shark repellent that she would become famous for. After the war, she married fellow spook Paul Child, and the couple moved to Paris. At a loose end, Julia Child enrolled at Le Cordon Bleu, tapping into the benefits offered to World War II veterans by the GI Bill, which offered to pay for veteran education. Welcome to the French Chef. I'm Julia Child. Today we're going to do coq au vin, chicken and red wine. It's one of the best... American taxpayers saw a delicious return on investment for the money spent on Julia's training at Le Cordon Bleu. Her many cookbooks trained the American women in the ways of haute cuisine. In Washington today, the value of education has again become a hot topic. The moratorium on student loan payments, which was passed in the early days of the pandemic and suspends payments, interest charges and collections on more than a trillion dollars in federal student loans, is coming to an end. Millions of Americans will have to stop paying off their college tab again. But what about their return on investment? Is all the time and money students spend getting a degree really worth it? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In Lexington, Kentucky, I'm Alice Fullwood. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, how do you value higher education? First, we look at what happened when students got to stop paying the bill. They were using those extra dollars that they had every month to service other debt. So we see mortgage borrowing go up, we see auto loan borrowing go up, we see credit card borrowing go up. Then we examine why college might not be such a good investment for everyone. In my sample of institutions, 14% leave the majority of students earning even less than the typical high school graduate. Essentially no earnings premium whatsoever, 10 years after they've initially enrolled in the institution. And finally, 
we think about what should be done about useless degrees. I also think governments could do a better job of regulating universities, especially the long tail of very poor universities in places such as America. Mike, Tom, hello. Hey, Alice. Hey, Alice. So for a long time, I thought our politics column in the paper, Lexington, was named after the Battle of Lexington. But I'm starting to think that the paper also has some sort of close affiliation with the city of Lexington. (laughs) Alice, what takes you there again this week? This week, I'm actually here to pick up a car. We're buying a car from one of Idrissa's family members. So I will become the first Money Talks host with a vehicle when we do our many, many episodes about cars. But there is some relevance to today's episode as well. Both of my uh, husband, Idrissa's younger brothers, are getting ready to apply to college. So uh, after this episode, they should know, uh, hopefully, what not to study and where not to do it. What did you both study? I studied history and politics. I did economics and dabbled a little bit in politics as well. What about you, Alice? I'm guessing you're also an economist? Yes, I cannot fathom how you possibly guessed that. On an unrelated note, how much utility do you think you derived from your degree? Well, honestly, I feel like my degree was kind of a series of maths puzzles that bore very little relation to reality. Certainly, I haven't found much practical use for uh, optimizing along indifference curves. I'd like to think that it taught me something about how to think in in a structured manner, although I think I mostly got that from my previous career as a consultant. It was fun, though. I also made friends with the person through whom I I would eventually meet my wife, so I suppose that's got to count for something as well. I think I learned literally nothing at all beyond sort of getting a credential. Sorry to any of the academics that taught me, if you're listening. I hope you're not. But I think the main (laughs) skills I learned related to rolling a cigarette, rolling other things, that sort of stuff. Uh, Nothing particularly (laughs) academic. So really, you sort of majored in pub with a minor in history and politics. That's a... Well, the pub was expensive, right? But I, I majored in the like Tesco value range of spirits, <laughs> let's say. Yeah. Well, the reason we are talking about this today is partly because millions of Americans may also have derived very little use from their degrees. And many of them also are about to have to start paying off their student loans again. So I thought it might be worth taking a look at education for a couple of reasons. First is... I want to think about what happens when a pretty significant portion of the US population suddenly finds themselves poorer by hundreds of dollars a month in many cases. Yeah, I think most of us would really feel it if we had that sort of amount of money coming out of our account all of a sudden. I uh, might not be able to afford to uh, shop online for my groceries anymore. (laughs) Yes, and then how would you make sure you eat the exact same thing every day? (laughs) The, The second reason we want to talk about education is that more and more people are starting to think it really might not be worth it. And I want to take a look at why. So to start answering those questions, I first want to bring in Mark Johnson, who is The Economist's education correspondent. Mark, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. So there has been an awful lot of debate in America in recent years about what to do with student loans. What is the situation now? Well, over the last couple of years, two major policies have been enacted or at least explored. First, at the start of the pandemic, the American government stopped requiring student borrowers to make repayments on their loans. But people will finally have to start making payments again come October. Second, Joe Biden had promised as a one-off that he was going to forgive up to $20,000 of almost every American borrower's student loans. That's not happening. The plan was struck down by the Supreme Court. 
But there are other plans underway. For example, the government is seeking to create a new, more generous repayment plan for student borrowers, which it thinks will provide them with more protection going forward. Okay, let's pick up on the debt pause first, as that's sort of imminently about to end. What do you think is going to happen come October when students have to start repaying their loans? Well, the debt relief scheme suspended payments and interest on more than a trillion dollars in federal student loans. It was meant to last only six months. In fact, it was extended eight times and it's expiring three and a half years after it was first put in place. I mean, this was a very costly policy. One guess is that it was costing the government about $5 billion a month to keep payments and interest suspended. So for government coffers, at least, this is good news. I mean, it's less pleasing for borrowers. So the average student repayment in America is about $200 a month. And millions of Americans are once again going to have to find that money. And the debt pause seems pretty clearly linked to the pandemic, a bid to provide short-term relief in a difficult time, even if it did, as you said, drag on forever and ever. But plans for debt relief seem to be driven by a potentially sort of bigger, longer-term issue with education in America, right? Which is that it's just become very expensive. Well, certainly over several decades, student fees have been rising. And it's not just in America. So in much of Europe, government has traditionally paid for higher education. And the trend there is that they are increasingly asking students to stump up more. And in fact, average fees and average debt are now higher in Britain than they are in America. I also think, though, that debates about the price of college are often somewhat overcooked. And Americans in particular have quite a lot of choice about where they study, with universities charging quite a wide variety of prices by international standards. And actually, over the last few years, undergraduate fees have plateaued and they've started falling in the US. So the received wisdom that prices are rising unstoppably is not that well matched with the reality. Okay, but there was a poll published by the Wall Street Journal, for example, earlier this year, which suggested that 56%, so just over half of Americans, now worry that a degree is no longer worth the time or the money in particular spent on it. Do you think that is mostly driven by the cost of getting a degree now or is anything else going on? Yeah, the pressure on students is not just that fees for many of them have indeed drifted upwards over the years, but the rewards have become somewhat less of a sure thing. So the, the graduate premium, in other words, the amount extra that a graduate earns over someone who doesn't get a degree, is in historical terms fairly high at the moment. It shot up in the 80s and has remained fairly elevated. But it is starting to trend downwards in most rich places. The big picture is that as more people go to university and as the number and type of courses available in higher education proliferates, there is more risk than there used to be that a person going to university ends up finding out that their investment is a bust. Well, thank you very much. On that somewhat gloomy note, we will leave it there. But please do stick around because I want to come back and discuss these questions in more depth with you at the end of the show. I'm not going anywhere. To look a bit more closely at that first question we discussed, what is going to happen when the student loan pause comes to an end? We are now going to speak with Constantine Yanellis, an academic at the Chicago Booth Business School, who has studied that question closely. Hello, Constantine. Welcome to Money Talks. Hi, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. The debt moratorium on student loan repayments is going to come to an end in September, with most borrowers making their first mandatory payment in three and a half years in October. And we're going to try and figure out what impact that will have on the economy. One of the ways to look at this is to think about what happened when payments paused in the first place. And you authored a paper looking at the effects of that moratorium on the economic behavior of the borrowers. So first up, 
Can I just ask how you went about analyzing that question? Yeah, so in our paper, we use data from TransUnion, one of the major credit bureaus, and we study the impact of the debt moratorium on uh, household consumption and debt responses. And we do that through using an institutional quirk of the student loan program. Basically, for historical reasons, some of the loans are owned by the federal government, the majority of the loans uh, now, but some of those loans are owned by private banks and the loans are guaranteed by the government. And only the loans that are actually owned by the government saw the payment pause. So we essentially used that variation to set up a quasi-random experiment and uh, look at outcomes. And, and what we found was actually quite surprising. I went into this thinking that if people weren't paying their student loans, they have extra cash on hand, they would use that money to pay down other debts. Now, that's not actually what we found. What we found was precisely the opposite. They were using those extra dollars that they had every month to service other debts. So we see mortgage borrowing go up. We see auto loan borrowing go up. We see credit card borrowing go up. We didn't find any effect on other kinds of loan delinquencies. So is that a sign that the policy has been a success? I'm going to do the typical economist uh, thing on the one hand and on the other hand, because, you know, reality is typically quite nuanced. So the glass half full way of looking at our results is that this policy really worked, right? The student loan pause occurred at the onset of the pandemic. And if you think of this as a way to essentially provide stimulus to the economy and stimulate household spending, it worked. And it worked in a way that's cheaper for the federal government, right? Because this is money that most of it, or at least a large part of it, will get paid back in the future. This is much cheaper than sending stimulus checks or enhanced unemployment insurance benefits. Now, the glass half empty way of thinking about this is that on average, household debt increase. So for these households that saw a pause in the payments, about three years later when we finished our sample period, they have not only about $2,000 in additional debt relative to households that were making payments, but they also have about another $2,000 of other debt. And that's concerning down the road. High levels of debt could depress consumption in the future. There could be labor market effects through the household debt overhang channel. I mean, we know from 2007 and 2008 that bad things can happen when households are highly indebted. Okay. And what do you expect might happen now that this moratorium is coming to an end? So I think this October, not all that much is going to happen, but I'm very concerned about what's going to happen a year from now. The reason I'm less concerned than I was even a couple of months ago is that the federal government is creating an on-ramp to repayment. And by that, I mean this October, people don't actually have to start making their payments. And by that, I mean if they don't pay their loans, what happens? So the loan doesn't go into default, and it's not going to be reported to credit agencies for a year. So what happens is that interest will start accruing. And, you know, I think that was a very smart policy to restart repayment slowly, because if payments actually just started full on this uh, October, it would have been a disaster. And I think it would have been a disaster for two reasons. One, a lot of borrowers are just not in the habit of paying. They haven't been in touch with their loan servicer 
Even beyond that, several large loan servicing companies like Navient exited servicing federal student loans. So those loans were transferred to other companies. So I think if payments had started without the on-ramp, there would be a wave of delinquencies and defaults. Hopefully a year is enough time for servicers to get in touch with borrowers and convince them that you know they really do indeed owe these payments to avoid delinquencies and defaults. And you mentioned earlier that in aggregate, because people had taken on other kinds of debt when they had a moratorium on their student loan payments, that they sort of accrued more household debt than perhaps other of their peers. Is that something you sort of worry about over the long term as well? Or do you think it wasn't quite significant enough to worry too much about? Yeah, absolutely. My colleague Amr Sufi has a lot of work showing that high levels of household debt led to depressed consumption and adverse employment outcomes during the Great Recession. So I think we could see something happen on a smaller scale. Granted, these levels of debt are not quite that high here. Mechanisms are different. Student loan borrowers have a lot of other protections that other kinds of borrowers don't. But it's certainly a concern for these borrowers who saw the payment pause. Now, one thing that I think can help alleviate this is income-driven repayment plans. So these are these plans that link a borrower's payments to their incomes and provide for forgiveness after a certain number of years. It's actually how student loan repayment works in a lot of countries like the United Kingdom, like Australia. And uh, the U.S. has been, uh, over time, enrolling more and more borrowers in these income-driven repayment plans. And they can provide a lot of relief to heavily indebted student loan borrowers. Yes, income-driven repayment is exactly how my student loans worked in the UK. And so how does that differ from student loan forgiveness? Why is it potentially sort of more effective way of doing it? Well, something that is often missed in the debate about loan forgiveness is that we already have a very generous and progressive loan forgiveness program, and that's called income-driven repayment. So the way that income-driven repayment plans work is that borrowers pay a portion of their income above a fraction of the poverty line. And then after a certain number of years, typically 20 or 25 years, depending on the plan, remaining balances are discharged. And the nice thing about income-driven repayment is that it's a very progressive way of giving uh, forgiveness because you only get forgiveness if you are low income. And if you have very low earnings, you don't pay anything at all. So when we're talking about blanket student loan forgiveness, what we're really talking about is loan forgiveness for higher income individuals. So if you just correlate student loan balances with earnings, you find that people with more student loan debt have much higher earnings. So that's often surprising to people initially. It's not surprising once they start thinking about it, right? Because people who go to college earn more than people who didn't go to college. And people who spend more years in college, like people who get graduate degrees or MBAs or medical degrees, end up earning more than people who spent less time in college, like those who went to only a two-year community college or dropped out of college. So there's a pretty strong correlation between student loan balances and earnings, which we always have to think about when we're thinking about loan forgiveness. Well, that was great. Thank you so much, Constantine, for joining the show. It was really my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Tom, Mike, 
speaking to Constantine did somewhat assuage some of my fears about restarting student loan payments because I had been thinking that perhaps that might be one of the factors that could help push the US into an economic downturn or a recession. On paper, there are around 45 million borrowers, which is roughly 15% of the US population, and their payments tend to be sort of around 10% of their income. And that could produce pretty significant drag from the fourth quarter of this year, especially given sort of all the other pressures on the economy. But as I pointed out, only about half of borrowers at any one time are actually paying. So half that to just sort of 20 million borrowers. And then there's this pretty cushy on-ramp period for people to get their act together and actually start paying again, which suggests maybe you'll have some drag, but it will sort of be spread out over the next year or so from the end of the moratorium. It's probably not going to cause some horrible crash. That said, I think they're finding that everyone reacted to the pandemic pause in student loan payments by ramping up mortgage or credit card lending is pretty fascinating. It implies that some kind of debt hangover is coming for these student borrowers at some point. To be honest, I'm not really sure I understand why exactly America should be easing the burden of student loans for investment bankers or lawyers or indeed management consultants, particularly given the state of government finances. I do think, though, that that calibrating those payments based on means makes a lot of sense. And the discussion around the transition toward an income-driven repayment system was very interesting. Uh, That's the system in Australia. It meant that as a graduate consultant, I, I had to make some pretty hefty payments for the first few years of my career to clear those debts, which were calculated as a percentage of my income. But I was, frankly, in a position to pay that, and not everybody is. Yeah, I find that really interesting. I think the international perception of the American education system is sometimes a little bit warped. I don't want to say it doesn't have problems, but I don't think most Brits, for example, have much conception that the US repayment system is actually quite similar to the UK one, that it ends after a certain number of decades, that it's only repayable over certain thresholds. It's quite similar in a lot of ways. I think foreigners often imagine sort of Harvard sending around a a loan shark to break a graduate's legs if they don't pay the VIG that week. And like Tom, yeah, I think the point Constantine makes the end there is pretty crucial. There's a lot of people who don't like the idea of individual students having to finance their education at all, what are essentially market rates in particular. And that's fair enough. That's a position. But let's not kid ourselves either into thinking this sort of blanket loan repayment halt has been largely progressive. There's a lot of people who do not need this assistance at all and are getting a pretty tasty windfall out of it. Having already benefited from the university education, obviously most of the earnings uplift accrues to them in that case. Well, speaking of unwarranted government freebies, there's a piece in this week's The Economist that is definitely worth a read on how Caribbean countries are readying themselves for new rules that are being implemented by the OECD that will make it more difficult for multinational companies to make use of them as tax havens. It's a fascinating piece that I heartily recommend to our listeners. And you can read that piece and more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription. That is if you're not a subscriber already. After the break, we will find out which degrees are really worth the money. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Before the break, we heard what is expected to happen when students in the US are forced to start paying their college bills again. But now I want to explore whether the education they're paying for was worth the money they are now having to fork out. To do that, I spoke to Michael Itzkovitz. He was appointed to the US Department of Education by President Obama, and more recently he founded the Higher Education Advisory Group, a research and consulting agency. Hello, Michael. Welcome to Money Talks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It used to be the case that going to college or getting a degree was a valuable thing to do, and that felt kind of obvious. But increasingly, people seem to have changed their mind a bit on that idea. Apparently, 56% of Americans now believe a degree is no longer worth the time or money spent to acquire it. What do you think is driving this? I think we've seen a change, number one, in the cost of college and the affordability. You know, a long time ago, we hear these anecdotal stories in the United States that college tuition used to cost $50 a college credit. Obviously, that is certainly not the case. And we've seen an exponential increase over the past few decades to where it hasn't really kept up with inflation whatsoever. So people are paying more and more out of pocket. I believe at four-year institutions, it's about $15,000 a year out of pocket. And we've started to recently ask more and more, what am I getting in return for my educational investment? This was exacerbated by the pandemic in the United States, where we saw a lot of students move from in the classroom to out of the classroom and perhaps working from home or in their parents' basement. And that really, you know, brought up the question even more, am I getting what I'm paying for? So the cost part of that is fairly easy to understand. If the sort of cost of these things have gone up, then obviously the cost benefits of doing a degree will change. But what's happening with the sort of benefit side, with the, the wage premium that people earn for getting a degree? Has that premium changed over time? What we know is that folks that go to college on average earn more than folks that do not go to college. So that's really a fact if you look at the broad averages in general. I believe for a bachelor's degree, you know, you're know, you going to be making about $2.8 million over your lifetime in comparison to someone with a high school diploma, but no college experience whatsoever. If you were to go up and get a master's or a doctoral degree, for example, if you have a doctoral degree, you're making $4 million more on average. I mean, overall, the verdict is out, is that college is worth it. Now, that being said, it oftentimes depends which college you go to and what you major in. And new data that's come out of the U.S. Department of Education has really highlighted those differences. And that's some of the things that I've been looking into over the past few years. So... What are the characteristics of the schools or the institutions that sort of are worth it versus those that are not? What we can see is that oftentimes if you go to a four-year institution, it's going to be likely to pay off. And I think overall what we can say is that college is generally worth it. What I've seen through my research is that there's 63% of institutions where students are able to recoup their educational costs within five years or less. So very quickly, they're earning enough to be able to use that earnings boost to be able to recoup their educational costs within just five years. So that's very promising news for colleges across the United States. That being said, 
In my sample of about four or 5,000 institutions, I also saw 442 institutions or 14% that leave the majority of students earning even less than the typical high school graduate, essentially no earnings premium whatsoever, 10 years after they've initially enrolled in the institution. And those schools that leave students no better off or possibly worse off, what is it about them that you think might be driving that? What we can see is that they're heavily concentrated in certain areas. Number one is that the shorter term programs, meaning certificate granting programs, if they work well, they can offer some of the fastest paths to socioeconomic mobility. And 47% of them, so students recouping their costs, within five years or less. You go to school for a short amount of time, you learn a skill or a trade, you enter the workforce and you begin to earn money immediately. It's a very good pathway when it works well. But we can see that 40% of those programs do leave students earning so little that they're not even making much as a typical high school graduate. While they offer some of the best returns when they work well, they're also some of the riskiest programs. What we also see is that a lot of those are heavily concentrated within the for-profit sector. So we can see that over half of for-profit institutions leave the majority of their students with no earnings premium whatsoever. This compares to only 4% of public institutions across the United States and 4% of private institutions across the United States. And on the second part that we mentioned, which is which courses seem to pay off more than others, obviously you sort of touched upon it there within certain institutions, but uh, in general, what are the kinds of courses that do offer good returns and which are not as lucrative? Unsurprisingly, a lot of those in the STEM field seem to dominate the highest salaries. Some of them, uh, students make over $100,000 a year. Something else I did is I looked at, I said, okay, this is great. We have the highest paying majors, but what about the most popular majors? Not everyone is a STEM major by any means. So I looked at the most popular majors across the United States and things like business, you know, which was the most popular four-year major, students are making about $58,000 a year. On average, registered nurses are making $76,000 a year. That's the second most popular major at the four-year level. But then you get other degrees that are very popular where students are still making less than $50,000 a year. These are students that have graduated. They've done everything right. They've paid their tuition. They've passed all their classes and they've gotten a degree. But things like psychology are still only paying around $43,000 a year, four years after students graduate communications and media studies also fall into that bucket of majors that make less than $50,000 a year, unfortunately, along with things like teacher education. So these are really some factors that we can look at when we're thinking about how much we're paying to obtain a college credential relative to how much we might earn afterwards. Michael, thank you so much for joining the show. It's been a real pleasure discussing with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm back now with The Economist's education correspondent, Mark Johnson. Mark, thank you for sticking around. No problem. Michael highlighted in that interview that for the vast majority of students in America, getting a degree does still offer a decent return, but there is a sort of reasonable sized minority for which it will not. So typically those at weaker institutions, maybe studying subjects other than STEM ones. Is this also true for the rest of the world or is it mostly in America that people are facing this problem? I think this is true in lots of places. Britain actually has better data than America on student outcomes. And one recent bit of research there guessed that over their lifetimes, 15% of female graduates in England and a full quarter of male ones are going to take home less money over their careers than if they had decided not to go to university at all. 
So what should we do about this if we need to do anything? Is it enough to expect students to sort of take this information in and adapt to the situation? Well, I think there is evidence that students are reacting, that students are seeking out the best returns. So in America, the number of degrees being handed out annually in English and in history, two degrees which historically have had lower returns, fell by about a third between 2011 and 2021. And over that time, the number of degrees in computer science, which produces high incomes, has more than doubled. Students are more aware of and more interested in the alternatives to higher education, such as apprenticeships, though those are still very underdeveloped in America in particular compared to the rest of the world. And I think the important shift is that employers are becoming somewhat more discerning. I mean, they're becoming more willing to accept non-graduate candidates for jobs that they would previously have required a degree for. I mean, that's partly because they want a more diverse workforce. It's because they believe that they have been missing out good candidates. And that's a shift that I think is going to make a big difference going forward. And do you think that will be sort of enough to guide people away from doing these lower value degrees? Or is there any role for government or policy in guiding people away as well? Well, I think the government does have a big role to play in making sure that students are all making the best informed choices. So lots of these governments are collecting much better data on how much students go on to earn. But they could do a better job of making sure this info actually gets into schools when it's needed, you know, perhaps through more funding for careers counselling, careers services in the last year of high school. I also think governments could do a better job of regulating universities, especially the long tail of very poor universities in places such as America. The government there has been really very lax about what money it will lend to whom and for what. Now, that has played a role in saddling youngsters with debt they can't repay. And I think it needs to become more willing to say, you know what, this course at this university is not worth those dollars. Makes a lot of sense. Mark, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. So, Mike, Tom, what do you make of what you've heard? Would you still recommend to listeners that they do a degree if they're off to college in September? So I sort of feel like there's competing elements here that come out in this debate every time. There's the sort of crowd of people who think there's inherent value in education and it's sort of grubby in a certain way to think of it in the way largely that we're discussing it here versus the sort of the market-oriented human capital accumulation crowd. They're bound to clash. There's sort of obvious disagreements here. But I think the worry that I have is that the presumption is that it's a trade-off, that one side is usually winning and the other one is losing. I feel like our higher education system, in most of the Western world at least, and I guess most of the rich world in general, is a sort of halfway house that manages not to really succeed at either. There's a lot of degrees that aren't really teaching people to be wonderful critical thinkers who are ready to go out into the world and look at things in a new way with this inherent value of education. And it also isn't necessarily giving people particularly valuable skills in the labor market either. So I, I guess I'm a bit jaded. I don't really feel like I, I learned that much at university, as I discussed, and I am not sure that a lot of people are getting a hugely better experience out of it than me. What I do think is that if you have my sort of view of this, you might well think, oh, fewer younger people should go to university then. But that seems to me more and more to just be sort of howling at the wind. There is... No way of making this happen at the moment because it's such a powerful status and achievement symbol as well. So you need to sort of think of clever ways to work around this if you want to address the problems. Maybe that's something like 
offering student finance style loans to people pursuing other things or, you know, maybe even offering them money on those terms if they just want to invest it in something else. If that's what we're thinking about this as, as a sort of investment in your future, then maybe the answer is that we need more options when that sort of decision is being made. And at least then it would be a sort of level playing field. Yeah, I I certainly agree that attending university is about much more than just the hard economics of it. You know, clearly there is social cachet that comes with a degree or perhaps a stigma that comes with not having one. And actually, you see this even in the world of romance. So here's a fun fact for you. 70% of individuals with a bachelor's degree are married to a spouse who also has a bachelor's degree, which is up from 50% in the 1970s. And I don't really know if there's much you can do about that. I do think, though, it's interesting that companies are starting to become a bit more flexible around how they think about requiring job applicants to have a degree for a certain job. And part of that is about actually really investing in bringing education inside the walls of the company. So businesses like AT&T and Walmart have been investing a lot in recent years in building these internal academies that they use to upskill staff that don't have a degree, which allows them to transition into higher skilled, higher paid roles in, in the company. And I think that's something that should certainly be encouraged, not least because that investment has a much higher probability of being converted into a better employment outcome because it's very closely tied to the skill requirements that, that a company has. Yeah, I agree with a lot of the points that you both have made. Actually, one of the things I did learn in university was a, a famous paper about the value of education and the signal that it sends. It was written by Michael Spence in the 1980s. And it essentially argued that there are sort of two prongs of value to a degree. One is the signal that it sends to the employers or, I guess, potential romantic partners, maybe high intelligence, highly skilled person. And a lot of what university does is sorting people that are perhaps more highly skilled uh, applicants for the workforce from people who are perhaps not. And then the other part of potential value in a degree is the productivity benefits you might gain by going to university and learning about things such as Michael Spencer's signaling model value of education. And I agree that when education has this signaling value, people are going to want to do it, even in a world in which it might not necessarily make the most sense from a sort of productivity or a sort of best use of their time perspective. I do find it kind of encouraging as well, like you do, Tom, though, that employers seem to have clocked that not all jobs necessarily require someone to do a four-year degree and perhaps doing other kinds of training or in-house training, maybe apprenticeships that are more popular elsewhere in the world than America are you know, more than appropriate for plenty of jobs. And I think one of the other points that's interesting is a couple of things that Mark said about how actually, although costs have risen enormously since the 1980s, they've sort of plateaued in recent years. At the same time, enrolment numbers have plateaued over much of America. And so there is this sense, actually, that people are taking a slightly more serious stock of the value that they're getting from some of these degrees. And perhaps that sort of long tail of institutions that don't actually really offer that much value will find it harder to keep going. And as Mark mentioned, maybe there's a role for government in making sure that the institutions it's providing sort of any government funding to are really doing a good job for the students that enrol. But it does seem as though many people have clocked that actually they should think sort of more critically about this decision. So I'm a little more optimistic that perhaps people will figure out this for themselves and maybe stop taking some lower value or or perhaps useless degrees. With that, shall we turn to our stats of the week? Let's do it. I'm happy to kick us off. My stat of the week is between 1.5 and 2%, which is the 
share of global electricity consumption that comes from computing. It's a stat that I pinched from a recent piece in our science section. It might not sound like a lot, but it's about the same amount as the entirety of Britain, and it's expected to rise to about 4% by 2030, with bigger and bigger AI models partly responsible for that. The good news, though, is that this figure has set off all sorts of efforts to try and make computing greener, ranging from the technical to the very creative, like building supercomputers up in the Arctic Circle. When we say it's the same amount as Britain, I'm sort of undecided in my head whether that sounds like a lot or a little bit anymore. <laughs> sort of like, it's like, we're either saying it's a mammoth or it's just the UK. <laughs> um, my stat of the week this week is actually from a little while ago, but it's 2,136. It's a Guinness World Record, and it's the largest gathering of people wearing hard hats, which was achieved by uh, Bullard, <laughs> a local company, in Lexington, Kentucky, in 2019. So there you go. I thought I'd go for something thematic. <laughs> thematic in certain ways, you know? <laughs> so- I'll save some up for our Lexington, Kentucky episode, but yeah. yeah. I uh, hadn't realized that Lexington, Kentucky has such a proclivity for hard hat wearing, but sticking with, I guess, a hard hat theme, I've pulled one of the many extremely gloomy figures about Germany from our cover last week, which we uh, questioned whether Germany had become the sick man of Europe once more. So my stat of the week this week is minus 20%, which is the orders for uh, engineering companies in Germany. They declined by 20% year over year last month, adding to the gloomy mood in Germany that all is not well. Business confidence is also shrinking and uh, people seem much less happy about manufacturing in Germany than they once did. On the upside, if they're not using the hard hats at the moment, they can try and beat the (laughs) world record. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh at Germany's quite severe manufacturing (laughs) recession. Yeah, from Lexington to Leipzig is where the uh, record will go. (laughs) And with that, all that is left to do is thank Konstantin Yanellis and Michael Itzkowitz. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. How can people, companies, and society benefit from virtual worlds? Register now for Economist Impact's Metaverse Summit, taking place on October 10th in Los Angeles. You'll learn about opportunities for creators and brands to extend your reach and innovate, and respond to new risks. As an Economist podcast listener, enjoy 20% off with the code ECON20. So sign up now at metaverse.economist.com. 